Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Welcome once again, my friends. I am your host, as always, David Woods, and I am joined today uh, by Mr. Justin Dean Lee. Justin and I are going to be talking about the concept and the history of the concept of freedom. Freedom is a term used uh, in everyday society. It's certainly a very American term. We fight for freedom. We live for freedom. We die for freedom. But we want to look at what does freedom actually mean in our contemporary age and setting, and what has it meant in the past. And what we want to do is ultimately trace a genealogy or a history of this concept that can shed some light on the way in which our society has come to use and, and use the, uh, the term versus maybe how the term operated in even the recent past. But we want to talk about this concept. It's going to get a little heady at certain moments maybe, but we're going to try to be super practical and not get too far off course. And in order to just ground it in reality, um, I wanted to open with an anecdote. And this is an anecdote shared by David Bentley Hart, who is a really great thinker that Justin and I both admire. He's a Eastern Orthodox theologian, trained as a classicist and a philosopher and a patristic scholar in the Christian tradition. He opens his comments on freedom and nihilism in a lecture he gave some years ago uh, by relating this anecdote. He says that he taught at the University of Virginia for a period of time, and while he was there, there was an incident in which one of the undergraduates who lived on the lawn, the lawn in, in UVA is the old the old part of the university. It's the part that was built in the age of Jefferson. It's like the, the oldest, sort of most revered place. And particularly bright and particularly um, sort of uh, impressive undergraduates get the right to live in the dorm rooms. These old dorm rooms, like, don't even have, like, proper plumbing, really. But these old dorm rooms on the lawn. So it's a, it's a high honor for an undergraduate to be able to live there. So Hart tells a story that while he was a... Uh, lecturer there, one of these students who lived on the lawn, one of these really, really bright undergraduate students, committed suicide. And as the weeks and the months unfolded and more and more information came out about this student, um, Hart knew other faculty who knew the student and knew uh, students that were really close to this student. And what they started to discover was that many of the closest friends of this student knew that he was planning to commit suicide. And when asked why they did nothing about it, why they didn't try to stop him, why they didn't tell people, tell his parents, tell authorities, tell anyone really, they almost quizzically seemed to respond, well, it was his choice. And we wanted to respect his choice. So that is a picture. It's an anecdote, but it's true. And it's a picture of a moment in time in our society in which it became thinkable for college students, very bright college students, um, to say that their friend died by his own hand and they could not or would not interrupt that process of self-slaughter because of this sacred thing, his choice, and that there was nothing higher than his will to choose his own death 
as a 19-year-old and that they thought it was almost the, it was the ethical thing to do. That there was this ultimate thing and it was called his choice, his, his freedom to make this decision and that he had this sovereignty over his own body, his own life, and who were they, even as very close friends, who were they to uh, intervene or challenge that description? I think it's also important to note that this perspective is certainly alive in the U.S. at the level of culture, Um, but um, in certain countries in Northern Europe, is very much alive at the level of law. What do you mean? So... Uh, right now in Belgium, I believe Netherlands, and uh, a couple of other countries, um, you can have yourself euthanized mm. um, simply because you find life to be intolerable for I- emotional or psychological reasons. So you're saying you're, you're making a, a slight distinction there where there are some countries entertaining or enforcing or, excuse me, passing laws that would allow euthanasia or end-of-life procedures for someone who's terminally ill, uh, in complete suffering, maybe even of a certain age. But you're saying even something much different or more extreme. In Belgium, you're saying that that description of intolerability may have nothing to do with physical pain. Right. But just yeah. emotional or psychological despair. Yeah, and and even ultimately, you know, will, um, you know, that, that chooses to see itself in that way. So in that context, what these undergraduate students were saying, and again, it, it was an ordinary thing for them to think. They didn't seem conflicted even about their explanation. Yeah. Um, so it had become thinkable well before they thought it, surely. Yeah. Um, and you're saying there are places even in, in Europe now um, where this is not only thinkable, but it's, it's what the law is. Mm-hmm. And the law, whatever else you may think, for many people is suggestive as much as it's uh, limiting, right? Um, and this is a, a very prescriptive kind of possibility, right? So especially in societies that are uh, based on certain kinds of litigation and legal codes that are their kind of ground of their ethics, right? Their yeah. law is their ethics. Morality is what the law kind of is. Yeah, There's once, not some uh, gap. Once family and, and other primordial institutions have, you know, atomized and dissolved to a certain extent, all you have left is, you know, the legacy and the law. And right. So the and, law... And, and in that case, you say someone disagrees, say, oh, I don't want my dad to kill himself, even though he has been in a place of deep mm. depression and despair and is wanting to make this decision. The law would intervene and say, you have nothing mm-hmm. to do or say here, even as a child of this man or, or what have you. Um, so... So, in the Western world, we're just going to stick to the West. There's a whole different conversation, I know, about um, Eastern developments. But in the Western world in particular, that's what we're looking at. And we want to think about this idea of freedom, freedom of choice. And we want to think about it in these kinds of forms, which are not unusual. Uh, Freedom of choice in our society, I think it's very arguable, uh, is the highest good. It is the thing that everyone wants to make sure of, right? Whatever else we may do, you must be able to do whatever you want to do. And the only thing we know for sure is we shouldn't tell someone else what to do and they should be free to behave in any way they want to behave except if it injures somebody or or whatever, except of course, I guess taking your life uh, doesn't somehow qualify as maybe injuring family members and their future. But either way, this idea that the greatest good in our society has come to be freedom of choice. And freedom of choice 
being almost like a bucket that has no particular content, just the ability to choose, to choose anything mm-hmm. at all. Um, in that same lecture, Hart makes the point that this is also sort of, sort of the apotheosis of consumerism, that um, consumerism and a sort of hyper-capitalist economy is based on that belief that choice just drives good, mm-hmm. that choice is just simply good, that being able to have 15 different options for any time you want to eat anything, 15 different brands, yeah. 100 different brands, that that is always good to just have more and more well, choice in and, and of itself. And that sort of consumerism is philosophically predicated on uh, on this idea, you know, this elevation of choice, of uh, autonomous will. Um, but uh, it also reinforces it and conditions us to... Um, you know, to give further gravity to that position. Yeah, like, I mean, sometimes I, I um, teach veterans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, veterans have a wealth of experience, obviously, and uh, views on the world and on decision-making that is unbelievably helpful, especially in a classroom with a lot of young people mm-hmm. without a lot of experience. Um, and, and, and one of the things that we'll talk about sometimes when I have these kinds of students is slogans you know even military slogans or or you know patriotic slogans about um what it is we're fighting for what it is people are living and dying for um and veterans will almost always say well i'm fighting for the brother next to me i'm fighting for this Mm -hmm. communitas i'm fighting for this group of people that i am loyal to there's like a deep communal identity in the military but at the level of of sloganeering which usually Mm -hmm. grates on them especially when they come home at the level of sloganeering there's almost always this you know we you know the terrorists hate our freedoms and Mm -hmm. we're fighting for our freedoms and 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 the only thing worth fighting for is our freedoms and it and it does just strike you eventually i think especially for veterans um that those kinds of phrases appear to have a lot of content, but it's not clear what the content is, mm-hmm. right? And so what you and I want to do is talk about, well, what, is that, what does it mean uh, in America when we say, you know, well, what, what we must have is freedom. Like, what, what we must defend at all costs is freedom. What well, the most important thing is freedom. And so we want to just start with some definitions. We want to say, okay, what do people mean when we mean freedom? A lot of times, really in our context, they mean the freedom not to be told what to do. They mean yeah. the freedom to be able to do whatever they want, even if it's harming themselves in this context or in this, in this situation of that anecdote. Um, so Justin is going to kind of get us a little more into the weeds and try to articulate this sort of modern definition. We're going to call it modern modern definition of freedom and you know what are its lineaments what does it look like and and maybe have a clear picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about freedom yeah so i live in the weeds you you are the the weeds i am the weeds I will interrupt you to try to pull you out of the weeds. I certainly don't necessary. live in the weed, okay. but I do live. But you in could, the weeds. because the law I, says I could, Justin, and so law. it must be good. And sometimes, sometimes <laughs> my will says, "Oh, well, who wouldn't want yeah. to if they just didn't matter?" I mean, why not? Yeah. I remember. Okay, no, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. So Justin's going to take us into <laughs> the weeds, but not the weed. Yeah. And he, uh, although that's absolutely what we're talking about, when we're talking yeah, about freedom we of choice. Are in absolutely, our day. we're talking about and oh boy, and oh boy, you know. Gosh, we can we can definitely come we can come back to this in terms we of psychosis. Will circle back to psychosis um, because our freedom makes us psychotic. 
Yes. Um, okay. So we first, will get back to that. So definitions. First, yeah, definitions. We're teachers of college students, even though <laughs> no one should ever imagine that to be true. Um, and so you always want to start out with terms on the board. If we had a whiteboard, we would draw these things. We would depict these things. We would name these things. So let's get some definitions. Yeah. So as always, it's very helpful to have something to contrast our understanding of freedom with. And so our modern understanding of freedom in the West and America in particular is um, it's very helpful to understand it by contrasting it with another very modern conception of freedom. Um, and so to do this, we'll, we'll use a, a famous 20th century philosopher named Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin. Um, that's a good name. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a gorgeous Coming name. and going, yeah. that's a beautiful name. Um, he, he wasn't necessarily a great thinker. Not the best person, um, but... <laughs> and, but we don't need to get into that. No, those he, are the weeds. He gave a very famous lecture in, uh, I believe, 1958, uh, which um, for, for those millennials and younger, uh, meant during the Cold War. Oh, the Cold um, War. So I always ask my students to situate whatever we're reading in its history, uh, in its original context. So he gave this lecture, which was titled, uh, Two Concepts of Liberty. Um, you know, during, you know, an intense moment of the Cold War. And, and the, uh, the lecture is basically a rallying cry for Western freedom, um, the Western understanding of liberty, uh, which he calls negative liberty. Okay, Western understanding of liberty, we're talking about freedom, yes. liberty, freedom, is negative liberty or negative it's, freedom. It's, it's negative. So, so negative in the, in the sense of it's freedom from, freedom from restraint. Um, freedom from uh, the imposition of other wills upon your will. Freedom and from someone telling you what to do, state, individual, whatever. Freedom yeah. from. And, and particularly um, freedom from um, someone telling you what to do with your property. Mm. And, and of course, um, under this conception of freedom, you are also your own property. Ah, sovereignty. Yeah. I, uh, I am my own keeper. I am, I am the, the god of myself. My body is my property. My body is my property. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Let's not go there. <laughs> I mean, get off my toes. Let's say, get okay. off my toes. Uh, yeah, okay. Don't tread on me. Yes. Okay, I yeah. got you. So, yeah, so negative freedom. So, so a lot of people will also refer to this as you know, a libertarian understanding of freedom. Okay. And Berlin contrasts this with positive liberty. Uh, which is the regnant form of liberty in the Soviet Union hmm. and under communist, the communist system. So the easy way to remember this is negative liberty is freedom from, positive liberty is freedom to. Freedom to. So freedom to achieve a greater end in history. Okay, freedom for. Um, yeah, freedom, freedom for. Freedom for certain things to happen, freedom to do this, but it has a, a direction. Yeah, so, so there's a directedness, but... Um, it's also um, differs in terms of the subject of freedom. Hmm. So the subject, the 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 experiencer of freedom, uh, for negative liberty, is the individual. Right. Uh, this is the the pub is Pinocchio cutting all the strings. Yeah. Nothing's going to pull on me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, within the the context of positive liberty, uh, the subject that experiences freedom is the collective. Ah. Okay. So um, this is the this is the corporate. Uh, freedom. So yeah. the collect. So this is more of a theoretical. This is more of a 
These are why these are totalitarian forms, yeah. right? Yeah. So the yeah. individual is not the locus of this freedom. It's not the central subject right. in this play. Um, and so the freedom that's for, or freedom to, is not with reference to an individual, but to a society or to a society yeah. of individuals, to, to mm -hmm. a group of people. Uh, and so obviously in 58, um, that plays as freedom for this form of government, freedom mm -hmm. for this form of collective organization. Yeah. And, and under that definition of freedom, you could entirely coherently say that sending millions of people to the gulag is being done truly in the name of freedom. Right, because we are funneling the whole toward a mm -hmm. particular end, yeah. and, that is, and anything that goes against that is going to be pruned away yeah. uh, and disallowed. The radical dictatorship of the proletariat requires in you know, the intervening period, in the interval, um, prior to utopia, basically, right. uh, the suppression of individual freedoms. So these are all totalitarian regimes because, or in, in the operating principle there, is that they are aiming at a, a certain end, right? Mm -hmm. The utopian society of a perfect distribution or, or whatever, at least a perf perfect share in certain things. Um, and in order to achieve that end, anything mm -hmm. that gets in that way must be stomped, smashed, destroyed, killed. Um, and they are freedom for one particular goal, and that's this particular uh, formation of the state or of the organized society. So as you say, coherent, not only coherent, but historical, right? Yeah. So Maoist China, um, any number of regimes of this time, millions and millions yeah. and millions and millions and millions of bodies uh, at the altar of this form of freedom. And it's for, important It's important to emphasize that, yeah. that this is also the Nazi conception of freedom, as well as the Soviet communist conception of freedom. Freedom for the Ubermensch, freedom yeah, for... Freedom, freedom for the, you know, freedom for the establishment of the Thousand-Year Reich. Okay, um, freedom for... The eternal Reich. Um, sacrifices are required in the present. Suppressions right. of individual liberties are required um, for the sake of this. So this even though project. you know, obviously Nazism is nothing like socialism. Um, they have the same utopian operation, and so they mm -hmm. have the same uh, willingness to destroy. Yeah, yeah. They have uh, what's ultimately the same atheistic metaphysics. Which we will unpack a little bit later. Yes, <laughs> okay. yes, we will. Okay, so... Further into the weeds. Further into the weeds. Uh, so, so far, we have two modern definitions of freedom. We have freedom from, which is what we say more American freedom. Mm -hmm. Okay, so American freedom, more of a libertarian freedom. Don't regulate me. Don't, don't tell me what to buy. Don't tell me what I can or cannot wear, do, carry, own, whatever. Yeah. Don't tell me how I need to maintain my property. Don't tell me that you have any any say over my property, especially because my property is my body. Um, so don't regulate my sexuality. Don't regulate any number of expressions. Right? Mm. Um, don't 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 don't. And yeah. and then the so the commitment there is to anywhere you see some outside or external authority mm. attempting to coerce, convince, influence, or restrain mm. someone's pure radical expression to do whatever it is they want mm -hmm. um you have the bad guy you have you have the, the right. danger you have the thing that must be stopped um so content less mm -hmm. but looking for any string that might be attached to anything and yeah. and looking to cut that string well, and, and you also see this you know this isn't it's not like this just emerged in the 20th century for right. america you right. see this deeply expressed in um you know the mythology of the frontier um, mm. in 
Um, you, the you, lone gunman out the there lone, on the plane squinting? The lone gunman. Yes. And, and, and none of this is to say that this is all bad. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look at someone like Emerson and his famous essay of self-reliance, you know, you, you see this idea deeply embedded there. Um, alongside a lot of beauty and a lot of things we recognize to be really good um, about, you know, the individual providing for oneself. Right. It's a tough thing with the American frame because the the transcendentalists, American transcendentalists, are some of the most unbelievably self-indulgent, some of the most ridiculously <laughs> non-philosophical, bad thinking, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And yet, amazing poetry and some yeah. beautiful prose yeah. and some moments of transcendent expression that is worth paying attention to yeah. and can't be dismissed mm-hmm. even though it is <laughs> for you and I um, wildly unhelpful as sort of a yeah. grounding uh, way of viewing reality or even yourself um, so a lot of beauty a lot of poetry um, but yeah that's the very best form of this kind of autonomous individual who strikes out into the world to remake the world in whatever fashion we cho- choose as as the perpetual Americans on the frontier, right? Yeah. Um, so what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, if you're not, if the deck isn't already stacked or you're not already like, you know, people like us who read certain things or believe certain things about, about Christ, although in the American context that always does get confused. Um, what, what, is, what, is, what is weak about that kind of freedom. I mean, that is still mm-hmm. what many, I would say Christians, absolutely are fighting for at every turn. Like, don't tell anyone what to do. Don't, don't tell anyone they can or cannot do anything. That is what they mean when they talk about religious liberty. That's what they mean when they talk about freedom. Mm-hmm. So wh- what are the limitations of that, or what do you find um, unsatisfying or, or even worse about that version, that definition of freedom? Yeah, well, it's nihilistic <laughs> and and so to get further into the weeds but yeah we'll, we're gonna save no, that no, no. we'll save that word for a moment okay um but just to be very concrete um under that regime of freedom yeah um you have to endorse the decision of the kid at uva right. to kill himself okay okay so that is the key i think it when especially if christians are defending that notion mm-hmm. of liberty they cannot defend it assuming anyone else will think and behave the way mm-hmm. they do, and they must extend that same definition to everyone else, no matter what they yeah. think and do, right? To be consistent, to not be a total hypocrite. Um, so they can't, theoretically, interrupt the kid at UVA mm-hmm. if they have themselves placed that version of if, freedom as the highest good. If if they're being consistent. If they're, I'm not but, saying people are. Of course they're not. But, but and, and of course, Christians aren't the only people who would want to intervene um, in that case mm. and, and who would want to try to reject the idea that negative liberty calls for non-intervention in that case. Mm. And the way people try to get there is through the, the concept of harm. Um, so... You know, the, the, the stupid illustration I use with my students is, you know, I start swinging my arm around, with, you know, with my fist. Yeah, that's like and, a Simpsons thing. Yeah, I know, it's yeah. totally a Simpsons thing. <laughs> Bart's so, not allowed to hit Maggie, <laughs> but he's going to start swinging his arms in a propeller-like yeah. motion, walking and, toward and her. And she happens to get she in the way. to get in the way of my <laughs> swinging arm. Yeah. But, but, yeah, so I am free to swing my arm however I like. Yeah. Uh, I like swinging my arm. You love swinging an Especially arm around. Especially when the, there's a fist on the Uh-oh. end of it. And, and so, but, you know, the, the classical understanding of negative liberty would say, you're free to do that until that fist connects with somebody's nose. Right. And 
Um, and of course, then, you know, you have to say, well, but I want, I don't just, it's not just incidental to who I am mm. that my fist might on occasion connect with the nose. Right. I like when my fist connects with a nose. So then you would have to say, who are you to tell me yeah. I can't hit someone in the nose? And you say, well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's harm because you're impeding on their freedom not to be hit. Okay, so now what we have is we have to negotiate a kind of neutral territory of everyone being able to express as much freedom as possible mm-hmm. without hitting each other in the face. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> the, so, so the issue of harm comes up, and I think you use that physicalized example, um, if only to even make the further point about that kid's friends not intervening, mm-hmm. because it doesn't appear what to physically harm them that he kills himself, right? Like it's mm-hmm. this kind of shadowy world of what do we mean when we talk about harm? Yeah. And we're as Americans, we're usually pretty good with physical property, my body, yeah. and certain things like that when we talk yeah. about harm. Um, yeah. So I mean, but of course, then you you do have to push further and just say, okay, how are we defining harm? Um, physical harm seems easy at first blush, uh, but the more you probe it. Uh, the more it falls apart mm. uh, as a concept, because um, it always you always have to appeal to something outside. Mm. Um, if just to keep things simple and crass, um, if I am punching a nose, mm. <laughs> um, and I like punching that nose, you love it. I, I my identity oh. is even wrapped up oh my with the idea of punching noses. Right, uh, I am a being towards your broken nose. You are a nose puncher I'm at a, your core. At my core, yeah. my deepest understanding of who I am. Born that way. I, I may, very likely I could have been born that way, or I, I choose now um, to to birth as that. Okay. And and who Impulse are you to that way. Yeah, and who and who, <laughs> who are you to say that, you know, my choice now isn't just as valid as uh, a choice deriving from my birth. Right. I mean, it's but now my nose is broken. And now your nose and now, is broken. And I'm like, hey, I wasn't a broken nose kind of person. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't a kind of person I felt like I was supposed to be in the world. Now, how do I stop you? Yeah. Well, well that's just the thing. At some point, um, you have to make a decision between wills. Because you have a will not to have your nose broken. I do. I have a will to break your nose. Dang it. And Whose will's greater? Yeah. Either way, someone's freedom gets impeded upon. To keep from harm. To keep from so harm. So it's impossible to live according to negative freedom. Yeah. It's impossible to pure, have a purely negative freedom society. It's right. impossible to live with or around anybody mm-hmm. um, without eventually two wills colliding together. Um, it's a classic, the neighbor drawing the property line mm-hmm. further in, in his favor than, than the others or whatever. Um, so just proximity, relation, human relationships demand mm-hmm. that wills are constantly colliding. Yeah. And then how do, we, how do we determine or differentiate between or, um, yeah, deliberate between which will is most important or who should win that? That becomes the role of the state, right? That becomes mm-hmm. the role of the government. The government becomes, this is William, William Kavanaugh's phrase, the government becomes the telephone company. Yeah. Trying to do its very best to connect us with what we want without it crossing over or being able to be shared exactly by someone else's telephone call in that particular spot at that Mm -hmm. particular time, right? But a transfer of goods and services that is trying to do whatever it can um, to avoid intervening until 
it's needed to intervene in order to negotiate between competing desires that overlap and those overlap all the time. So, so where would you, yeah. Yeah. And when it does intervene, um, you know, it, it still is confronted with the same problem of, uh, how to define harm. Right. Um, and, and it must appeal to something outside of itself um, so that it's not simply being arbitrary. So it can't just be, well, you're right, because the law, what is the law? Some transcendent mm-hmm. good? Like, what is the law mm-hmm. in that case, right? Or what is the state? What is the appeal to or toward? If it's not thought through, it literally just is, well, it's because it's the law, right? Yeah. Like, well, what does that mean? Well, mm-hmm. it's the law. <laughs> you know that thing, <laughs> other people's wills put together? You know, it, 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 the appeal is very abstract. It's mm-hmm. like, what is, where did that come from? Why? What's it grounded in? It's just what it is, right? It's yeah. almost not grounded in anything. Um, but you're saying it has to be grounded in something or mm-hmm. we have to call it what it is, and yeah. that would be what? Um, nihilism. Nihilism. And so can you define nihilism? Yeah, so or if you want to be really snooty at a party, you say nihilism. Nihilism, <laughs> yeah. So so we can, we can be... And then they'll, you will get punched in the nose if you oh, say nihilism. Oh, man. And... <laughs> That's my. That's how I express my being. Yeah. I find people who my, say nihilism, my will and I to punch power them in the nose. Is... My will to power. Oh man. <laughs> okay, define nihilism. So, for me. so uh, what, from 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 we... the Latin nihil, yeah, which nothing. means which means nothing, nothing, and and in a very deep sense of nothing mm. as the absence of being, um, which we'll return to, you know, in terms of just the pure metaphysics of it. But so so nihilism, you know, you can think of it in a few different ways. Um, a lot of people like to break it down into um, distinction between moral nihilism and epistemological nihilism. Good Lord. Yep. Okay, wait. No. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Let's keep our scenario. Two people are fighting, people and the state fighting. is trying to intervene. And then one of the guys, the state says, hey, Justin, don't punch Dave in the nose. And then I say, yeah. And then you say, says who? And the state says, uh, we do. And, the, and then you say, why? Yeah. Right? Like a, like a kid. Like, come on. Why? Prove it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and the state says, what? Because. Yeah, because. Because, right? And you say, but why? Yeah. And what does the state say? The, and, and the state says, because we say so. Because and that's we the end say of the so, line. yeah. <laughs> because, because we have a monopoly on the use of violence. Okay, okay. And, and that is why. Because we have the guns. Yeah, we and have the guns. Because we can actually enforce this decision. We can, we can drone our own citizens if we but want But the to. decision itself is not grounded in anything yeah. that is real yeah it is arbitrary on some basic level in that case it is grounded only in an individual will or in a collection of wills right an expression of force or power but it's not grounded in anything like a truth or a fact or something right that anybody would be able to see outside of those contesting wills and this state with guns so Mm -hmm. so you're saying nihilism is sort of what do we say a metaphysics that has no metaphysics it's a it's a groundless state of being. It's a mm-hmm. it's a way of viewing or living in the world or thinking about the world to which you can appeal to nothing outside of yeah. pure expression of individual or collective wills. Yeah. Um, and there, so there's no justification. The only justification, because there's not a justification that could be quote unquote true. Mm-hmm. So the only justification could just be uh, strong eats weak because yeah. I can get away with it, yeah, right? Because the state has more power, or or because maybe you're stronger and so I can't fight you off. So you your will literally wins because of force. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not grounded in anything true or real outside of the contesting wills. 
It's, it, there's nothing else there. That's why it's nothing outside right. that, right? And, okay. And so, and of course, even though, you know, structurally, you know, our, our culture embraces negative liberty, uh, we're, we're not purely nihilistic. You know, we still have this legacy of transcendent values that, you know, antedate mm. um, the, the United States. Right, right. Nobody, and, well, very few people, maybe some philosophers would call themselves nihilists. Mm-hmm. Um, some... Uh, Angsty, sallow but, teenagers. Yeah, but 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 most of even the most serious philosophers, yeah. unless they um, are coming from a tradition um, that's you know pre-modern mm. in in some sense, uh, are nihilists, whether they're willing to admit it or not. Okay, so yeah, and the the only the one or two that I can even think of, it becomes this sort of resignation to the the mm-hmm. meaninglessness of life. It becomes like a new kind of a, a neo-stoicism, yeah. right? Like um, nothing has any meaning. Every act is groundless. Well, for the for those who yeah. are honest. Right. I'm thinking of yeah. there's literally two that I'm thinking yeah, of that actually yeah. call themselves that. Yeah. Um, so nihilism is a, a – why is that a problem? I mean, in other words, yeah, why is that – and that might be like, oh, depressing. But haven't people been saying that? Like the universe is just this empty void of whatever. And Bertrand Russell says you just stand on the edge of the rock <laughs> and scream into the void. Yeah. I mean, isn't nihilism just admitting what science already knows that it's just a void? Um. Yeah. Like, yeah. Sure. It's just sure. Sh- <laughs> sure. Like, like on, sure. On man. the old Christian podcast, Justin became a nihilist. No. Okay. Why is it wrong? It, why? Why do we have a problem with nihilism? Yeah. So, so the very quick an- the very quick answer has to do with language and the meaning of language. Um, so, you know, when you make the argument for nothingness, mm. when you make the argument to say that you know all traditional values are wrong, they're just masks for power. Right. Um, and you do the, this whole deconstructive thing right. um, for the sake of, you know, the freeing of the will. Okay, there is no transcendent good. There's no transcendent yeah. meaning. There's nothing outside of us, our wills, our expressions, uh, our collective wills and expressions that, that determines. There's no grain of the universe. Mm-hmm. There's no trajectory of consciousness. There's no trajectory. of. There's no nature. Yeah. There's, no, there's no purpose. There's no... There's nothing beyond. So yeah. there's no transcendent so, ground of meaning. So what's happening there yeah. is, you know, I, I mean, that would be, um, people would refer to that as moral nihilism. Moral nihilism. So so there is no good and evil. There's no right and wrong. Or if there is, we couldn't possibly know it. Brothers Karamazov, yeah. Dostoevsky. And, and so, but the problem is that um, you can't just stop there. Right. Uh, that, uh, that implies an epistemological nihilism. Uh, as well, um, we know there is no good and evil because it's impossible to interpret anything. What do you mean, yeah. epistemological? How we come to know anything? Yeah, there's no way to come to know anything reliably, consistently. Or... Yeah, so so you have like a, a weak version and a strong version. Okay. A weak, weak version is maybe there is a world out there. Mm. We can't know it though. Right. So like the agnostic kind of version. Yeah. The posture and then of and maybe. then the strong version is you know is <laughs> Nietzsche. Um, you know, who in the will to power says very clearly, there is no true world. Um, and, you know, so there is no true out there. Mm. Um, there is no nature to appeal to. There is no science to appeal to. There, there is no possible truth. Everything is, is merely the construction of will. Mm. And the problem is, though, is, is we're, we're saying all this. We're getting there through... Uh, the use of language, cognition and expression, and we're understanding each other. Yeah, okay. we are. We are. We have. You know, there are shared norms that are happening. These aren't just emergent evolutionary realities that eventually came to make sense to us. 
Um, no, because that also is incoherent. Okay. Um, sa- same thing with same thing with that whole that whole song and dance, mm. uh, which we don't need to get into. Okay. But the the ultimate problem is that if you believe that the world is meaningless, is ultimately meaningless. Yeah. You mean you believe language is meaningless, hmm. and so you believe that the very words that you're using to construct your argument to express your belief about the meaningless of the world is itself meaningless. So if oops. the wor- oops, <laughs> if the world is meaningless, if language is without ultimate referent, um, then you couldn't possibly know it because you couldn't possibly express it. Right. So how could your thoughts, in the first case, be coherent? Because mm-hmm. what are you interpreting if there's nothing to interpret? And then how could you express that to any other person in a coherent or interpretable way if that is impossible? So, so the word for this, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're listening and you want to write down a special word, it's <laughs> self-referential incoherence. Okay, I don't think anyone's listening at yeah. this point. But <laughs> So, yeah, nobody's listening. Maybe my wife the, eventually. The weeds are listening. Like, did you know you talked the about weeds. the weeds once? Um, okay. So, so, we're going to put weed in the tag for this post. That's the only way this would get listened to. <laughs> Two Californians discuss yes. the problem with weed. I'm like, yeah. oh. Then we, we, we can just, we, we'll also tag it Alan Watts. I'll tag it CBD. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, we, we got to this point. So, we're at Nietzsche, 19th century nihilism, yeah. a beautiful nihilism, very sort of strong masculine nihilism, unfortunately uh, co opted and expressed through the Third Reich. Um, but we have this expression of what and, matters. And intersectional feminism. Uh, come on, take it easy. We're, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. Okay, so there is no meaning, but there is potency in act, right? There is the expression mm-hmm. of power. And so, Nietzsche's phrase, famous phrase, the will to power, the will, the uh, ability of humans to intentionally move into space and time and act and think and mm-hmm. be and express, that that is it's just raw expressions of power. Mm-hmm. So it's back to you and I deciding who's going to get punched and who's going to, and the yeah. one with the strongest fist or the fastest feet is going yeah. to win in that contest. Or, but or that's reality. Most, or the most persuasive use of language. Okay, but that's reality. Yeah. Reality is power. There is nothing except power. There is not truth. There is not an appeal to some greater principle or some greater value because there are no ways of of contacting those things or they don't exist, right? It's either soft or it's it's strong, um, whether or not there's anything out there. It doesn't matter if we can't know it, and it certainly doesn't matter if it's not there. So all we're left with is power. And and the power to to will to choose it goes back to where we started, right? The ability of this young man to make a decision about arresting and ending his own life is respected by his friends as the one thing they must respect: his will to power, his will. He chose that. We knew he wanted to choose that. How how are we going to get in the way of his will? Mm-hmm. So that brings us not just to Nietzsche, but it brings us further back to. Why would we have a, I mean, it'd be interesting, I guess, to have a podcast to just talk about freedom, but you and I are talking not just about freedom and what it is in the modern era, because that's what it means. We're talking about it because we want to talk about it as a genealogy. And our genealogy does not go back to Nietzsche. It goes back much further. Mm -hmm. And so take us to the next place. Where are we going to go back to from Nietzsche? 19th century, Nietzsche says, and by the way, American society, contemporary Western society has only just caught up to Nietzsche, right? The the kid, uh, UVA, (laughs) was just being Nietzsche yeah. um, 200 years later, right, on the lawn, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, 150 years, whatever it is. Um, that is just the the time in which 
an actual philosopher's thoughts have come to so be the water and air in which people live that oh. it becomes unthinkable for those other undergraduates to intervene uh, and stop his will to power. So we're at Nietzsche and that moment, but we need to get behind that. We need to get further back. And where do we go next? Um, yeah, so I, I, mean, I think we can j just start by saying that Nietzsche is responding to a historical situation um, and he's responding to other thinkers. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of that is um, him responding to, you know, the hopeful version of, of negative liberty and, and these, uh, you know, these ideas that emerge from the Enlightenment. Mm. And, and Nietzsche's saying, okay, well, let's maybe be consistent with our logic and see what's actually implied by these premises. Okay, and so even with my students today, they still think the Enlightenment is a real thing and it was really a good, good thing, right? Yeah. And so the Enlightenment, the idea here, which is positive, even mm -hmm. if it's negative liberty, it's cast as what? John Locke, tabula rasa, you are whatever you want to be. There's nothing yeah. that preforms, predetermines you. There mm -hmm. are no strings attached, right? You are a blank slate upon which your reason, which is like an opening of your mind to the light, right? You mm -hmm. can just, you can just, you open your rationality um, to the world and you can perceive clearly and understand clearly and then you can become and express whatever it is you want, including America. You can, yeah. you can literally just try this mm -hmm. grand experiment of a new society, um, literally based on philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. And just say, we're going to do this, right? Mm -hmm. There's this incredible optimism in the Enlightenment. There's this incredible turnover from this moment after the scientific revolution um, in which people suddenly, uh, they, they name themselves the Enlightenment, right? <laughs> which means everything that was before us was dark and stupid and superstitious and religious. So now it is sort of the cleansing, getting rid of religion, mm -hmm. the 18th century, and it's the age of reason. And what you're saying is the Enlightenment itself is fundamentally about negative liberty. It's, it's fundamentally about we yeah. have no constraints upon us that are necessary. They're all mm -hmm. artificial or superstitious or bad thinking or fear mm -hmm. of the dark or whatever powers of the church mm -hmm. or the states. And so they are not necessary constraints. There are no strings that mm -hmm. need to be attached to us. Well, and it's not just negative liberty as well. Okay. I mean, you know, this is the origin of positive liberty. Sure. Um, you could even say positive liberty is the American project. There's a, uh, very much a goal of yeah. state formation and, there, right? You know, and it's not like we only have negative liberty in the U.S. Right. Um, any, anything, you know, in our politics that asks us to make sacrifices of property um, for the sake of the collective, mm. you know, so universal health care, for instance, et yeah. cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, yeah, is yeah. positive liberty. Yeah. And, and so we obviously don't, you know, even as being as infatuated with negative liberty we as we are. We still pay taxes. Yeah. Yeah. We still and, pay taxes and want roads that are not destroyed all the time. Yeah. Okay. But so, yeah, so not to sandbag or be yeah. unfair or, or lopsided, um, but, but but this Enlightenment moment mm -hmm. is still based on these definitions you yeah. that Berlin gives us about modern freedom. Mm -hmm. So there's something before that that we need to get to. That is yeah. so then we have to get behind the Enlightenment then. Yeah. So so we have to get, you know, so, so the I mean, the Enlightenment in in such an enormous way is you know, is anti-tradition. You know, we, you know, we are not the inheritors um, of anything but 
the world. You know, okay. the, there's this detachment. We're not responsible, right? Tradition is yeah. like this sense of responsibility to a past yeah. of a lot of people who have died. Yeah. Um, the responsibility to certain ideas or certain mm-hmm. formations um, that you have to carry on that uh, legacy like a child would to a, a family's name or their, the family mm-hmm. trust or something like this. So you're saying alignment, enlightenment in part uh, is, is doing away with that sense mm-hmm. of responsibility views that responsibility as chains right yeah. those are chains of the past tradition mm-hmm. is just another form of slavery right it's just another form of the mm-hmm. dead telling you what to do right yeah. um giving you things that are unnecessary restraints upon your self-expression or your your yourself right mm-hmm. your your even or even your new state whatever you want to be um so the doing away the attempt to do away with tradition um and what else about this what other things are going on this moment, or or where do we need to get then to get something that looks yeah well different? There's you know not not to get too Marxian, <laughs> you know, but there are you know materialist there are you know material conditions that are changing on the ground in Europe, um, you know during and especially prior to the emergence of these ideas, and a lot of that has to do with um, the emergence of the nation state. Mm. Uh, it ha- you know it has to do with the consolidation of power behind absolute monarchs, you know, in the early modern period. And which necessarily means, you know, whenever you have a large social transition like that, um, that means some kind of a break with tradition. Mm. And, and so you need to be able to rationalize that break. And, and so the Enlightenment in, in an you know, enormous way is the great rationalization of uh, total power. And um, you know, within individual nation states. So, and because it's, it's important again for those who are still with us, um, it's important to say while we think ideas do fundamentally uh, affect and change, mm-hmm. change human behavior and societies, um, those ideas are always already nested in mm-hmm. material changes on the ground, economic changes, industrial changes, right? Any number of different changes at at. at a number of different levels that it's, it's important to just acknowledge that these, mm-hmm. they don't float and skip across the surface from one philosopher to the next, yeah. right? Yeah. They really do emerge, you know, from these unbelievably layered processes of, of just human development. So everyone's responding to someone else, okay? Mm-hmm. And we have all these different conditions in like, let's say the 16th, 17th century that kind of produce this enlightenment moment, not out of nowhere, even if yeah. they want to tell the story like they appeared fully so, formed. So we want to look at the tools, the building blocks that Enlightenment philosophers used to to, to justify, you know, their their systems. Right. Um, Ultimately, a very secular yeah. uh, system. And yet the surprise thing here in the genealogy is that the tools and the, the, the fundamental ideas that they did use and go back to and elaborate on were not themselves secular ideas. Yeah. Right. So what were those ideas? Where did they come from? Yeah, so they came from the late Middle Ages. They were invented by monks. So it's theology. It was certain, <laughs> yeah. it was certain theological arguments mm-hmm. um, that might have seemed hopelessly obscure yeah. at the time that they were uh, first given and articulated, mm-hmm. which, again, we're going back 13th, 14th century, yeah. when they're first articulated. Um, people like William Vaucom and people like Duns Scotus mm-hmm. are usually the two big guys when it comes to these changes. But it's really important that we're not just um, ultimately, you know, beating up on this idea of, you know, freedom, uh, negative freedom, and this impoverished sovereignty of choice is the mm-hmm. only good. We're also owning this as part yeah. of our tradition, right? Yeah, that, we, we produce this. Right. So this is on <laughs> us. This is something that has come out of 
the Christian theological project. Mm-hmm. And and so and so <laughs> what an incredible cliffhanger. Uh, and what an in- terrible edit <laughs> on my part. Um, we are going to put the bookmark right there in this uh, f- riveting discussion of the history of freedom. And we do hope you will join us for, for part two, uh, where we're going to get into this issue of how Christian theology actually made this all kind of pivot in, in an unfortunate way. But Justin and I are going are gonna to be going further further down and further in uh, into the history of freedom. And so I hope you'll join us uh, next week for part two. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe and your sweet sweet grandmother old grandmother Eunice Eunice should definitely subscribe until next time may you live well think well and love well Godspeed